regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where I hold long-form conversation with data practitioners to unpack the narrative journeys of their career. My guest today is Marco Kaminsky, the co-founder of Recast, a marketing optimization platform, and the co-founder of the Analytics Engineers Club, which is a training course for data analysts looking to improve their engineering skills. He has experience applying economic research methods to fields including environmental economics, child welfare policy, and medical treatment efficacy. Marco is passionate about helping organizations make better decisions faster. In his spare time, he studies Spanish, reads a lot of books, and pet dogs around Mexico City. So yeah, Marco, uh, glad to have you on the show. Happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Really excited to talk today. Fabulous. So I kind of want to start our conversation discussing a little bit about your educational background. I saw that you did your bachelor degree in economics at Arizona State University. In particular, you also said that you learned how to use the Stata programming language, and you did some research on, on water demand study for data cities. Overall, how would you describe your undergrad experience? And then maybe can you share some of your favorite economic classes and, and projects that you did during your undergrad? Yeah, so a lot of people ask me about my experience at Arizona State University because it's not sort of known as a sort of citadel of peak higher education, right? It's known as a party school. But I had a great experience there. I learned a lot and, you know, I got a lot out of that school. I think an interesting thing about Arizona State University is that it is an incredibly well-resourced school. And so if you want to get a really good education, you can. And if you want to spend the whole four years partying, you can do that as well. And so it's sort of up to each individual to figure out how to make the most of the experience at Arizona State. I got really lucky in that I was able to work with a few like really top tier professors. I got exposure to professors who were really at the top of their field. They're incredible. And they had budget to fund a lab and to hire people like me as research assistants. And that's just not a thing that you, that everyone gets exposure to at, you know, other sort of really high quality universities. It's just harder to do because there's less budget for that sort of thing. So I feel really lucky to have had that experience. And I had a really good experience at Arizona State. Studying economics, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I sort of took to it very naturally from the very beginning. My favorite classes were an advanced microeconomics class with a professor named Ed Schley. That was really, really good, sort of really changed my perspective in terms of thinking about how we can use math to reason about really hard analytical questions. So that was really interesting, sort of convinced me that I needed to get a lot better at math really quickly if I wanted to be able to have the type of career that I wanted to have. Um, And the other one was an advanced environmental economics class that I took with Professor Kerry Smith. He eventually ended up offering me a job in his lab as a research assistant, and that really changed the course of my career. If it weren't for that experience, I don't know what I would be doing right now. I might have like gone to law school. I would be doing something very, very different. But it was through that experience working in his lab and learning from him in his classes that 
I got exposure to working with Stata, to using econometrics to answer, again, really interesting, really hard problems and starting to think about, oh, like there's this whole world where we can write code that uses data to answer really important questions. And so that was a real turning point in my career and really pushed me down the path of wanting to work in econometrics and statistics. That was what it was called back then. Now we would call it data science, but back then like data science wasn't really a term. And so we just called it econometrics and statistics. But from there, a whole lot of doors started to open up for me with those skills. And I sort of realized that I was good at it and that there was a lot of opportunity there. And so I wanted to really focus a lot of my effort on doing that. Yeah, thanks for sharing your experience in undergrad and in that research experience really have a big impact the way that your career has been shaped. After college, you uh, moved to Boston and then you spent uh, more than three years working as an analyst at the analysis group. There, you did some research on health economic outcomes, working primarily with pharmaceutical companies and developing statistical libraries for SaaS. Could you mind discussing any memorable projects that you work on during this career phase of yours? Yeah, I've worked on a lot of really fascinating projects there. So the analysis group has a really interesting business model where they basically do research for hire. I think a lot of their business comes from working with law firms to do basically damages valuation in really enormous court cases. Like you think about one giant company suing another giant company, somehow they have to justify what numbers they're suing each other for. And the law firms will hire a company like analysis group to do that sort of research. And so there's a lot of really, really interesting questions that come up in that sort of work. And you have to do really advanced analyses. You know, we spent a lot of time working with PhDs, some of the most advanced economists in the world on these cases. And so that was like just a great training ground in learning how to think about data and learning how to make arguments with data. I spent a lot of time working in health economics outcomes research. I did a lot of really interesting research on a lot of you know, really interesting topics, a lot of which are sort of difficult to explain because they end up being sort of very nuanced questions about like how one drug compares an effectiveness to another, but it teaches you how to think or taught me how to think really hard about how to answer these difficult questions and how to set the problem up correctly. The hardest part of these analyses was always setting the problem up correctly, right? Where it's like, okay, how do we get a fair comparison between two of these different populations of patients who are taking two different treatments, especially if in the case where those treatments tend to be prescribed to different classes of patients. One class of patient tends to be older who get this type of treatment. Another class of patient tends to be younger who get this other type of treatment. And so how do you make a fair comparison between those two treatments when you don't actually have a true randomized control trial in order to make the comparison? So a lot of really interesting work there from like an analytics and statistical perspective. But more importantly, what I found during my time there is that I was actually pretty good at writing software and I had never, you know, taken any courses on programming in college. I really had no formal training, but we wrote a lot of code in SAS and SAS is like Stata. It's a proprietary statistical programming language used to be a lot more popular than it is now. Now it's, you know, sort of a dinosaur, but that was what we had. And a lot of the analysts spent a lot of time writing the same code over and over and over again. And what I realized was that if I could take a lot of those common operations and build them into libraries or packages that other people could use, if I sat down and did that once, I could save the entire company, you know, hundreds, thousands of hours worth of time every single time that I did that. And so I started turning my focus to that to really thinking about, okay, how do we take a lot of these things that we do in very similar ways across a lot of different projects and build them into one centralized repository of 
scripts or libraries that other people can use that will make them a lot more efficient. And once I started doing that, it really opened my eyes to the power of software. And it's funny when I reflect back on it, because you know I wouldn't have considered myself a software engineer at the time. And I didn't know a lot of basic things about software engineering, right? I was quite a bad software engineer at the time. Um, I'm even now not an especially good one, but th back then, especially so. I didn't know anything about version control. We didn't use Git, right? Like every program that I wrote, I would save in you know the Microsoft Notepad text editor and save it underscore V2 on my desktop. And that was where it lived. Like that was where the library was. And so it's this really interesting experience where I got exposure to the power of what software can be and how much leverage it gives the people who write it and how you know it can save the analysts there they were billed out at like 200 or $300 an hour. So if you save a couple of hundred hours, couple of thousand hours, like it adds up to a lot of money really fast. And that really opened my eyes to thinking about like, oh, there's really something to this software thing and being able to build tools that other people can use to be more effective is really, really powerful. Yeah, definitely. It seems like you recognize that value added activities to save people's time and you sort of contribute to that cost. Just a quick note on John Learning Curve for software engineering, as you mentioned that you study econ and didn't really have a, like a formal training on programming Winston, like how did you level up your computer science slash, you know, programming knowledge during this period? That's a great question. I mean, a lot of it was just through, you know, wanting to do new things at work and having to figure out how to do it. Um, I probably could have taken a much easier route to doing it. Like if I would have gone and taken a few classes on computer science, I think I probably could have saved myself a lot of hours of bashing my head against the wall, trying to figure out how to do whatever it was that I was trying to do. But honestly, it was just like, okay, look, like I want to write a program that does X. I'm going to have to figure out, I'm going to sit here at this computer and work on it until it does X. And that was a lot of the way that I learned. I think after I left analysis group and I started actually working with more software engineers, analysis group was challenging because there weren't any software engineers there, right? No one, oh, there was a ton of economists, no software engineers. And so no one really had the type of knowledge that would have been useful to me in terms of like really teaching me how to be a good software engineer, or a good programmer. And so it was once I left that group and I actually went and worked at a startup that had a lot of software engineers and I started getting exposure to the tools that they were using and the way that they think about problems that I was like, oh, there's really a lot here. And that actually really helped me learn a lot really fast because I was able to see like, oh, like they use an actual, like a real text editor in an integrated development environment. Like that's a huge speed up in terms of my efficiency. They use Git for version control, another like a huge speed up in my efficiency. So things like that of just getting exposure to the way that actual professionals work in the field, instead of trying to like rediscover all of these things myself, that was really the big unlock for me in my career was just seeing how other people did it and then being able to learn from them as opposed to trying to teach myself everything. Yeah. It sounds like the environment have a much more impact than your poor willpower, right? Circling back into your career up to spending you know those years with the analysis growth you moved to new york and you work as a data scientist at a non-profit organization called case common in particular you are building software for trial welfare organizations can you briefly comment on this current phase of jaws and furthermore like what do you learn about building effective data-driven products yeah so this was a an interesting experience for me i mean coming out of analysis group i was basically just really sick of working for big pharmaceutical companies for all of the reasons you can probably imagine and so i wanted to move to new york and i wanted to work on you know a product that i felt like was doing good in the world case commons was really interesting they build a really important product that is trying to change case management software it's a really difficult space and there's a lot of really hard problems there i got to learn a lot about 
I mean, a lot of different things. As I was just talking about, I got to learn from like real software engineers who are good, who are writing, you know, Ruby on Rails, at, which at the time was like the height of modern development practice now is a little bit outdated. But back then it was like, you know, they were sort of the best of the best software engineers. They were really, really talented. And so I got to work with them and learn from them. And it was also just a really interesting time because let's see. So this was what around, I don't know, 2014 or so. And so the world was really changing really quite quickly in terms of the amount of data that was available and what people were doing with it. Like this was when people started calling themselves data scientists, things like Spotify had just launched in the United States. And so recommendation and the sort of things that they were doing there were becoming more popular and coming to visibility. And me and my team, and I think back to the team that I worked with there, it was just filled with incredibly, incredibly talented people who now are like, you know, off doing just incredibly impactful things. And we had like a core group of us who were really, really good. And we were dedicated to working really hard on trying to build products that would actually really help caseworkers do a better job and help save kids' lives by using all of the data that we had. And I mean, I think, you know, on the one hand, I learned a lot how to think about how to build data products, right? And I learned basically like how to do what we would call product management today. So how to think about what the user actually wants to do, how do we need to go build that for them? What are the key features? What scope do we need to cut? And I also learned how hard data work is, right? Data work is special in a lot of ways because it requires both a software component and the data component. And so it's sort of almost infinitely more complex than just building like a web app because there's just a lot more going on because it's not just the application alone, but it's the application plus data. And you need both of those things. You need a really deep understanding of what's happening in the world in order to build an effective product that way. I learned a lot about doing that. And I started thinking a lot about what are the big problems in data and what are the things that really slow down data analysts and data scientists? Because when I first got there, we were spending a lot of time cleaning up data. The case management system is incredibly complex. Like any sort of big child protective services system is going to be incredibly complex because in general, what those systems do is they're trying to map all of the relationships that different people have together. So a kid and their aunts and uncles and friends and other people who are in the system and their contacts with judges and caseworkers and the caseworkers, other families. And so it's a giant web of interconnected people. And so what the software was trying to do was map all of that together. And then in order to build a data product on top of that, it's just really, really complex because there's all of these different types of interactions and types of relationships between people. And so I started to learn that, you know, People would ask us these questions that sounded really easy, but it would be really, really hard to go answer because we had to combine all of the different tables and all of the different data. And so I started to learn that I could make our team a lot more effective by centralizing where that data cleaning and organization happened and start to build, again, this idea of building tools that would make these data scientists and analysts a lot more effective. If we could bring all of the data together so that it was pre-cleaned up, ready to go, ready to analyze, it would save hours and hours and hours of time. And it would allow us to actually consistently answer these questions in a way that was meaningful. And so again, a lot of what I've been talking about is the idea of at the beginning of my career, I spent a lot of time watching analysts and data scientists just lose weeks and months of time to data cleaning and data organization and you know making mistakes where it's like, oh, I thought this column meant this when really it meant something else and being really frustrated by that and starting to at least take steps towards building tools and building systems that made that process a lot more efficient for them. And so that was, again, just another big learning I got exposure to really complex data. I've never worked with a database or a data system as complex as what I worked with at Case Commons. 
I got a lot of exposure to just thinking about, okay, what would good tools look like if we had them? And I took a few steps toward building those tools, but I did it very poorly because uh, I was quite a bad engineer. I'm still, again, not a good engineer, but back then, especially bad. But we did start taking those steps. And that was really exciting for me and really interesting because we got to see like, okay, you know, this system is bad and it does not work as well as it could, but it's definitely a step in the right direction. I mean, it's definitely pushing us onto this path of being a lot more efficient than we were before. And I could see what a good system would look like. Like I could see it out in the future. I was like, okay, a good system would have these features. It would allow them to write SQL and then it would allow them to persist different relations in the database that are semantically meaningful to the business or to the analyst or to the data scientist, which can make doing actual analytics work a lot faster because we can share this centralized knowledge rather than having to clean everything from scratch every time that we want to do a new analysis. And that was just a huge insight for me, just realizing that like there was that opportunity to be able to do that and no tools really existed at the time that allowed for that. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing the learnings, key learning challenges that you, um, you know, overcome in this career phase of your job. It seems like going over that desire to save people just time and effort and increase the productivity. And it seems like right real early on in your career, you already focused on the tooling aspect of the data work, which, you know, we're going to talk a lot more later on in the conversation. Continuing with the thread on your professional careers, in 2015, you moved to a new role as the director of analytics at Harry's, which is a consumer company that providing men's grooming brand. First of all, how did this opportunity come about? And secondly, uh, what were some of the big challenges of starting a new data team from scratch? That's a great question. So how the opportunity came about, I don't really know. I think I like saw a job posting and reached out and I had some connections with some people there. And so they were able to get me an introduction, but you know, it was a really interesting opportunity and it's coming off of what I was just talking about at Case Commons. Like I had seen, I had had this insight where I was like, okay, we can build tools that can allow analysts to work very differently than they have in the past. And as I was realizing that I was like, look, the only way that I'm going to be able to have the chance to go and realize this dream of working differently as an analyst or a data scientist is if I do it myself. If I go join someone else's team who have been doing it the same way for the last 10 or 20 years, I'm not going to be able to bring this vision to life. So I was really looking for somewhere that was going to let me try to build this thing, this idea of like the new version of doing analytics, modern analytics, let's call it. And I got really lucky. I went and I talked to the folks at Harry's and I sort of told them about my vision And I was like, look, like this is the right way to do things. It's not the way that y'all are doing it right now. It's not the way that anyone else is doing it, but it's the right way to do it. And I promise you that. And they were willing to take a chance on me. And they said, okay, like, we'll bring you on. Let's do it. Come in and build this stuff. And I did. And it worked out really well. It worked out really well for me. And I think it worked out really well for them. And that was a great partnership and a great opportunity for me, but it was a huge risk on both sides. Like I was coming into an organization that had never had a data person. And they were like, who is this guy? He's never built a data team before. He wants to do something different. Like that's especially scary. But and so I'm really grateful to them for taking a chance on me and letting me really experiment with what a data team could look like. The challenges that come with starting a data team are things that I think, you know, everyone talks about, right? It's really being the first data hire in a company is really, really challenging, especially at a really fast growing startup. There's a ton of things to do. There's no support or infrastructure. None of my bosses knew what analytics was. None of them knew how to like write a SQL query. I really had no support, right? And that's just like a scary place to be because I was responsible for all of the company's data, but it was just me. I 
did one thing very smart when I was starting there, which is that I really focused on trying to deliver a, a lot of value really quickly to build trust within the organization. And again, following this thread of pretty much everything I've been talking about today is I really focused on, okay, how can we build tools that are going to make other people's lives a lot easier. When I came in in my first week, I was going around and talking to different people who worked with data in different ways. And they showed me you know, these enormously complex Excel workbooks. And my friend Rahil told me, he was like, look, you know, this is this workbook. I have to block out every Thursday, the whole day to refresh this workbook to give us our reports for the day. And I was like, that is crazy. Like we, that is not a good use of your time. We need something better than that. And so I sat down and I took, you know, what took him a full day to refresh once a week, right? So that's a lot of time. And I wrote up code that could do most of that for him. So it went from being a full day to being half an hour. And that was just enormously impactful. From there, I went and I did that for a couple other people. I looked at what they were doing. I was like, we can do this much more efficiently. Let me help you. And I went and I, I didn't add anything new, right? But I saved these people a ton of time. And that bought me a lot of goodwill to be able to from there, go on and actually like propose more substantial changes. But really a lot of the work that I was focused on was how can we build tools that will make other people's jobs easier? I said that the motto for the data team at Harry's was we want to help the organization make better decisions faster. And that was really what we were focused on was not the data team is not going to be like the research team that comes and brings insights from on high. But really what we want to do is we want to put data into the hands of everyone in the organization to help them do their jobs better. And so we focused a lot on tooling. We focused a lot on efficiency and we focused a lot on even taking analyses that are complex and then making them easy so that other people would have access to them. That is again, a thing that is a thing that I think today is a lot more common, but back then, you know, six years ago, a lot of data scientists really got a lot of pride from being the only person that could do statistical analyses at their company. And so they, they sort of guarded that. And rather than saying, okay, I'm going to build tools so that everyone can do these analyses, they would say they would feel really important when everyone had to come to them with you know, a question. And so we flipped that on its head and we said, look, if we have to hire new people every time we want to do more statistical analyses, that's not going to scale well. And so instead, what we need to do is we need to build software that will allow everyone in the organization to answer those really interesting and hard problems. And that's what we focused on. And we enabled just like an incredible level of sophistication and data analysis all across the business. You know, I'm really proud of that. And I think that that was approaching the problem from that side instead of being like, okay, I'm going to build a team that's really good at answering questions. I said, I'm going to build a team that's really good at building tools that will allow other people to answer their own questions. And that insight, which again, is sort of the core insight of analytics engineering and this idea of building tools was really what allowed us to be really successful at Harry's. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for providing that insight and really like the idea of like how you use that model to um, get socialize the value of analytics for the rest of the non-analytical stakeholders within the organization. Going deeper into some of the engineering and analytics product that your team at Harris were working on. In particular, the team build and manage the data warehouse, develop an internal marketing attribution tool, as well as developing a fleet of system for automated decision making to improve efficiency. So can you unpack both analytics and infrastructure challenges associated with some of these initiatives? I mean, we built a lot of really cool products there. It was really fun to get to work on it. And I had the benefit of being, you know, of working with just an incredible team of analytics engineers and analysts at Harry's. At 
pretty much every e-commerce company, marketing attribution is sort of the biggest problem that they have to solve. So marketing attribution and then LTV or paybacks is basically the fundamental equation of every e-commerce company. And Harry's was no different, right? The idea is that you want to spend as much marketing dollars as you can to grow as quickly as you can, because that's how you get better margins. But you know, you need to know like where to spend that money. You need to make sure that you don't spend too much because if you spend too much, you're underwater and you're losing money. So that's like the fundamental equation. And that was where probably the majority of the analytics team time went was working on that particular problem. And so we spent a lot of time doing that. And there are a lot of challenges. A lot of the challenges are rooted just in the fact that marketing is really complex in a lot of very important ways. And so the initial way that everyone would think about solving something is like a good first pass, but it turns out that there are like thousands of other edge cases to deal with to actually make something that's usable across, that's actually consistently usable. So there's that like problem of just like everything is complex and hard and you need to think about, okay, you know, if we're doing direct mail, how do we think about doing attribution for direct mail? Are we using coupon codes? Are we not? When we have those coupon codes come in, how do we match them back? What do we do if multiple different marketing channels should or could get credit for a conversion, right? All of those questions are really hard and building a system that has reasonable rules for doing all of that is actually quite complicated. On top of that, the data is really messy and complex, right? There's all kinds of, there's UTM codes. There's lots of different math to do to try to figure out, okay, how are we actually going to solve that? So we just invested a ton of time and a lot of it was not you know, data science, right? A lot of it was not statistical, but really just a lot of engineering work to say, okay, what are the rules? How do we actually like, can we sit down and write down what all of the rules are that we want to apply? And then can we build a system that does that? And so that was a lot of the work that we did. We also did other work that was, you know, really interesting, but maybe a bit more speculative, but we were experimenting with doing things like tagging and prioritizing CX tickets as they were coming in based on their severity, right? And so building pipelines that could do things like that. We built an automated landing page testing system that would do multi-armed bandit allocation of traffic across different landing pages, right? And so that would allow us to speed up our ability to test. We built a lot of automated testing systems or automated, I guess, A-B test readout systems. So again, this is this thing that I was talking about where if you need a data scientist to analyze every A-B test, it's really going to slow down your A-B test. So we built a platform so that our product managers could run A-B tests and then get a readout of all of the test results with statistical significance, with sort of all of the different metrics that we had agreed were important in the business. That made it a lot easier for them to interpret those results correctly and then decide whether or not they wanted to deploy some feature or not. So that's just like a big sort of grab bag of the different types of things that we worked on. But again, this idea of making decisions faster was always at the core of what we were doing. And that could be helping a product manager interpret an A-B test, or it could be automatically choosing which landing page is going to get served to different customers. All of those fell into that idea of how do we make decisions faster, some of which are purely automated and some of which are not purely automated, but all in that range of how can we keep pushing this forward to keep the business moving forward and actually you know, getting better faster and faster and faster. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for you know providing some of the use cases and kind of talking again, like you know, emphasizing the central team that tie together, you know, the mission, the model of your team at, at Harris. You, you spent about three years there, and uh, after that, you decided to leave New York and you moved to Mexico City, and you know, spent time practicing Spanish among other things. I'm just curious, like, what sparked this career transition? Good question. I was ready for a change. I was ready to 
leave New York for sure. I don't do very well in the cold. And after four years in Boston and four years in New York, I was like, I got, I just cannot do another winter. I resolved that I was going to leave and move. And I thought, you know, everyone had said cool things about Mexico City. It seemed like a fun town. So I packed a bag and showed up and then just decided to stay. Professionally, I was also ready for a change. I mean, I liked the team that I worked with at Harry's, but it was time for me to start to think about, I mean, at the time I was really thinking about becoming an entrepreneur and I wanted to sort of explore that a little bit more. And so I really didn't have like a super strong plan. Like I didn't have a great idea, but I was like, okay, I'm going to leave New York. I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to check out Mexico. And then I'm going to explore a bunch of different ideas and hopefully something sticks. And then I knew that if nothing did stick, like it would be fine. I could always find a job. But that was the idea is I was like, let's make a bunch of big changes and let's see what happens. You've written a few articles on your personal website about how you actually learn Spanish, right? Can you uh, give a very brief you know, overview of how's that process for you and what level of fluency have you been? Yeah, I'll try, I'll try to be brief, but this is like one of my absolute favorite topics. And so it will be very hard for me to be brief. So I basically didn't speak any Spanish before... Let's see. So I started, I took one Spanish class in New York before I moved here. So I guess I've been, you could say that I've been learning Spanish, like maybe about three and a half years. I have a lot of thoughts about it. I've successfully learned Spanish, right? I speak fluently, definitely not perfectly, but like the girl that I'm dating, we only speak in Spanish together. It's fine. I can more than get around. I can go to a party where no one speaks English and I can show up and I can have a good time and make friends and make jokes, right? Which for me is like, once you reach that level, you're at a pretty good level. So I feel you know great about that. And it's something that I'm very proud of. I've learned a lot about the science of how people learn languages. One thing that I think is really interesting is that a lot of people say that or a lot of people talk about how only young kids can learn a new language or how it's a lot easier for them. Turns out that's not actually true. Adults actually learn languages faster than kids when given the same amount of instruction time. But there's a couple of things that lead to that myth. So one is that young kids do learn how to speak without an accent. It's very difficult for adults to, to learn how to speak a foreign language without an accent, but much easier for young kids. So that is one advantage that kids actually do have. But other than that, adults have an advantage because they already know a lot of other concepts and they can map grammatical concepts in the target language onto their own language. But the myth persists because for a couple of reasons. One is that the bar is much lower for children. Right. Like if you have a six year old and the six year old knows like a hundred words in French, you're going to be like, wow, this kid speaks great French, but like really it's just a hundred words. And like six year olds don't speak great English either. And so people are like, oh, yeah, they just pick it up so quickly. But the bar is much lower. You know, it's very easy for an adult to speak like a six year old as well, but no one gives them credit for that because you can't show up to a party and speak like a six year old and actually like have a good time. And the other reason is because it's hard. Learning languages is really hard and it's a lot of work. It's actually not that complex right? Like it's not, I can put together a plan for anyone to learn a new language. And I feel like they'll be able to do it if they follow the plan, but no one wants to do it because no one actually wants to study their language 45 minutes a day for years, which is what it takes. I still study Spanish every day. I review vocabulary. I do my flashcards. I do a lot of studying in Spanish. And especially during the entire first year that I was here, I was probably averaging over 45 minutes a day of like dedicated study time in Spanish. And, you know, I eventually got there and I succeeded and I was able to actually learn how to speak Spanish, but it was not complicated. I don't have some secret key other than you have to study vocabulary a ton. 
fluent speakers of a language probably know in the order of 30,000, 40,000 words, at least college educated fluent speakers. That's a lot of words. 30,000 or 40,000 words is a lot of words. Study for a year and you study 10 words a day, you're at almost 4,000. So you're 10% of the way there. And you just need to like put that in your mind as being like, oh, wow, I need to learn a ton of vocabulary in order to actually be able to speak fluently in this target language. And that for most people just seems incredibly exhausting and daunting that much vocabulary learning, but that's really all that it takes. That's the big secret. Yeah, absolutely. Deliberate practice. Deliberate practice is pretty much everything. And the language learning is no different, but it is possible, right? Like I didn't start learning until I was 30 and here I am 33 and I speak pretty well. Oh, sure. Yeah, thanks for sharing that journey. Did you mention a little bit earlier that you want to check out the entrepreneurial part when you, you know, moved to Mexico City? I believe that during this period, you also started a new consulting practice to help companies get more value out of their data. And this is written in your website. Basically, it said that you offer training sessions and workshops for executives to develop their strategy for companies to build their driven products for their teams to learn tooling in data warehouse and BI as well as for analytics leadership teams to run high-performing data teams. So how did you find potential clients who might be interested in your consulting service? Yeah, so I did a lot of consulting, largely just to pay the bills, right? The whole idea behind this strategy was you do consulting to pay the bills, and then you spend the rest of your time doing more interesting entrepreneurial work. The best thing that I ever did for my career was just building a really strong network of data professionals in New York. And so through that network, it was actually really easy to find different types of consulting work. Some of them on the more coaching side, some of them, you know, really just like sitting down and doing software engineering for companies, but almost all of it came through my network. And, you know, this was a thing that I didn't appreciate until I was getting ready to leave Harry's, but when I was younger, I had always sort of looked down on this idea of networking. I was like, look, networking, it sounds like bullshit. I don't really want to go and spend a bunch of time at a cocktail party listening to some dude in a suit who's like a sales guy chat my ear off about something I don't care about. And so I was never interested in it. And I always sort of thought of it as a dirty word, right? The idea of like, oh, no, I don't do networking like that. It's very transactional. Like I you know, have my friends, we go to concerts, whatever. What I learned later on was that networking does not mean like going and chumming up with a bunch of sales guys who aren't interesting and who are just talking about, you know, the Patriots. It's actually like, it just means like being friends with people who are like do the same sort of professional work that you do and talking with them and helping them. And once I realized that, and once I sort of changed my mind about like how to think about, you know, how my, what I want my relationships to be with other people in the world, that really made a huge difference. And I started spending a lot more time just talking with people about analytics and data work and talking with people about analytics and data work is something I enjoy doing, right? We're doing it right now. I do it for free all the time. And it turned out there are other people who also like doing that. And I didn't realize it at the time, but like when I was spending time going out for beers with other leaders of analytics teams in New York, uh, I was networking. I just thought I was like talking their ear off about things that I care about, but it actually meant that when I was ready to leave Harry's and do my own thing, I had this enormous network of people who thought I was at the very least a nice guy that had reasonable ideas about a, a number of different things. And that went a really long way so that when someone asked them for, you know, someone who could help, they would call me. And Again, you know, when I'm talking to junior people in their careers, this is advice that I give them is don't be like me, like don't wait until you're 28 to start thinking about, you know, actually going out and talking to people professionally. The earlier you can start, the better, because 
networks are just incredibly valuable. My network now is probably the most valuable thing that I have for all of my different endeavors. And I wish that I had known that when I was younger or had thought about it in a less toxic way. I mean, I actually spent more time getting to know people just because I, not to get anything out of them, right? I spend a lot of time talking to people for lots of different reasons, most of which is I'm trying to help them, not trying to get anything out of them. But then when it comes time, when you actually do need help, having that huge network of people who owe you favors or who you've helped in the past is just incredibly valuable. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for sharing the, that advice. And I think like what in the research for this conversation, I wrote one of the personal posts that you wrote on your website saying that one of your special powers is like, say, how can you help? That's exactly the idea behind, you know, building your network, just adding value, contributing to others, giving your knowledge and supporting the endeavors. It's the key. And we talked a bit about that professional friends group that you created in New York in a few more questions. Before that, circling back into your entrepreneurial endeavor, since January of 2019, you have been the co-founder of Recast, whose mission is to help modern brands improve the effectiveness of their marketing dollars. Can you share the story behind founding the company? Yeah, so this is a great question. So I mentioned some of the work that I did at Harry's, which a lot of which was thinking about you know, marketing effectiveness, which of our channels are working, which ones aren't, how should we allocate our marketing budget in order to grow as fast as possible without losing money. And it turns out that that problem is relatively straightforward for small e-commerce brands. So if you are you know, doing a couple million dollars in revenue a year, you're really probably only spending money on Facebook or Google. It's pretty easy to tell like where your customers are coming from. And it's pretty easy to run experiments to say like, okay, you know, we're more or less on track here. As businesses get bigger and more complex, those problems get a lot harder. Pure digital tracking doesn't really work, especially if you're doing offline marketing, things like TV, radio, podcasts, all of which are quite hard to measure. And then if you're selling omni-channel, so if you're not only selling online, but you're also selling brick and mortar, then the problem gets even more complicated. There really aren't very many good solutions out in the world for measuring the effectiveness of marketing in that complex environment. I spent a lot of time thinking about that when I was at Harry's because Harry's started out as a DTC, direct-to-consumer e-commerce brand, but then eventually launched in Target and Walmart. And now it's available pretty much anywhere you can imagine to buy razors. I'm pretty sure you can buy Harry's razors there right now. And you know, I went along with the business on that journey of being like, okay, we feel really confident about how we're measuring marketing effectiveness for our direct-to-consumer brand for our website sales, but we have no idea what's happening on the retail side. Like, is our marketing actually helping retail or not? And so as I was leaving Harry's, I got really interested in that question. I was like, okay, this feels like it's a really big, important question. It feels like it's only going to get be a bigger and more important question as more and more businesses come up that are online first but that are also operating in the mixed channel world of having online and offline advertising, having online and offline sales. And so it just felt like a really big problem that was also really interesting. So as I was leaving Harry's, I reached out to my friend, Tom Vladek. He's my partner on Recast. He is also a data scientist by training. He has a lot of background in doing marketing data science effectively. And he had also heard a lot about this problem, right? From clients of his consulting business. And so we put our heads together and we were like, okay, this feels like it's a big problem. It's potentially really valuable. We looked around and we were like, we don't think that any of the existing players really have a good solution. So there's a bunch of old school media mix modeling vendors of whom there's like Nielsen has a product that does this. 
New Star Market Share has a product that does this. There's a handful of other people who have products that do this, but they're really oriented around old school traditional brands, right? So, you know, they sell products to companies like Pepsi. And then once every six months or once a year, they will hand build a model, produce a giant 140 page PowerPoint deck, and then deliver that to the executives. And that's the product. And they'll say like, oh, look, you had an ROI of X on TV and Y on radio. And so for your next biannual media buy, you should spend more on radio and less on TV or whatever. The issue is that that's not the way that modern marketers work, right? Modern marketers are making decisions on a daily, hourly, weekly at slowest basis. So they're looking at their Facebook admin panel. They're saying, okay, this campaign is performing well. This one's not. We're going to take money out of this campaign and put it in the other one. Our CPA is trending up on Google. We need to pull our bids back. They're doing all of that on a daily basis, right? The idea of getting a PowerPoint deck once every six months that says how the last six months went is just not useful to modern marketers. And so what we decided to do at Recast was we decided to take the ideas of media mix modeling, of having a big statistical model that could provide valid inferences over mixed media marketing channels, online, offline, top of funnel, bottom of funnel, online sales, offline sales, everything but provide it in a way that was actually useful to modern marketers who are used to making decisions on a daily or weekly basis and are used to running more experiments and thinking about manipulating marketing spend in a much more fine-grained way. And that was where Recast came from. And we spent a lot of time just doing pure research. It turns out the statistics of doing this is actually really, really challenging. Mm -hmm. Um, It took us a long time to even get to a model that basically worked, right? Basically a year of R&D without any paying clients, without any pay, we just were really working hard hard on the underlying statistical model. Thank goodness for Tom, because he's a really good statistician and really a lot better than I am. And you know, we finally got to a place where it, it actually seemed like it's working and we really have something that is meaningfully better than anything else in the market by a large amount, we would say. And so now we're at the point where we have a number of clients that we're working with. We're really starting to grow the business and it's really working. We're creating a lot of value by helping companies measure channels that they had never been able to measure before. And it's really exciting. And so it's been really fun to get to build a product from zero, from scratch with someone else. Like I'd never had that experience before. And it's incredibly stressful and challenging, but also just a ton of fun and, you know, absolutely worth it. But yeah, so it's worth it, but just way more work than I'd expected when we started it. Yeah. Thanks for sharing sort of the context, the history, prompt statement, as well as the way that request solution being built to address them. You know, we can talk a bit more about the technical problem that, that you mentioned, right? Which is like to perform a media mixed modeling in the context of programmatic channel. And there was this blog post on the website that talked about, and you kind of already talked about sort of the history of media mixed modeling and some of the challenge applying for multi-channel. Can you dissect a bit more on the recast approach? Because you, you mentioned a little bit about this is very like researchy, right? And maybe some high level overview of the techniques that require to solve that problem that recast like leading on to, yeah. There's a couple of things that we do differently from a theory perspective, and then also just from a product perspective. And then the way that we implement that is there's some interesting technical components to it as well. So one of the things that we really focus on is we focus on measuring incrementality, which is to say what the core question that we're trying to answer is if a company spends an extra $10,000 on a marketing channel over a couple of weeks, how many additional sales are they going to get? That's a really challenging question to answer from a retrospective statistical model for a bunch of reasons. There tends to be a lot of correlation in marketing channels, right? Marketers tend to spend money going up and down together. That correlation problem is really, really difficult if you think about it in the context of like a traditional least squares regression, right? 
So that is what we're focused on. And that's a big problem. And the other thing that we do that is different than the way a lot of other people approach the problem is we allow the ROI, the return on investment, or the effectiveness of a marketing channel to change over time which again, we think is important, right? And any marketer will tell you that this happens, right? Facebook changes its algorithm and all of a sudden their effectiveness goes down or they release new creative and all of a sudden their effectiveness goes up. And so being able to capture that effect is really important to us, but it also makes the model much more complex because you have you know, not only all of the different parameters for all of the different marketing channels, but you have them changing over time. So you have not just an ROI for Facebook, you have an ROI for Facebook every single day going back for the last three years. So the huge number of parameters is one of the big problems. The other big problem is this idea of causality. How do we actually try to get an estimate of whether or not changes to marketing channels are causal or just associated with changes in the outcome that we're trying to measure? So on the causal side, there's been some new developments in the statistical literature that basically provide ways to start to unpack this. In this world of having correlated channels, we can break apart the factors that are all correlated together from the non-correlated factors. And we can use that to actually estimate a causal relationship. So we based this off of, you know, it's work that's really new, right? Papers that were published in the last two or three years is a lot of what we based this part of the model around. The other big thing is we use a software library called Stan to actually estimate the model. Stan does Markov chain Monte Carlo sampling to estimate these models that have, you know, enormous number of parameters, right? So with even our our small clients, we're estimating 20,000, 30,000, thousand parameters in this model. The only way that we can do that is through a process, a sampling technique called Hamiltonian Monte Carlo, which is actually really efficient. And so that is built into Stan. And so we've done all of our modeling in Stan, and that allows us to estimate models that are a lot more advanced than what was possible five years ago, right? Five years ago, we would not have been able to do anything close to what we're doing right now on the computation side. And then on the statistics side, we wouldn't have been able to like answer the type of question that we're trying to answer right now because the theory just didn't exist as to how to actually do it. So those two advances um, are the big ones that have locked us to do what we're doing right now in trying to estimate actual like causal effectiveness. That's a huge thing that you know, the theory is still really developing on right now. And then actually being able to estimate a model that's as big as complex as the one that we do right now through the power of Hamiltonian, Monte Carlo, and Stan. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for providing the context and you know, really zooming into the technologies and techniques that are being used to power the underlying of the recall solution. And I'm definitely looking forward to seeing more of the content being pushed out from your team in the upcoming months. Besides recast, you are probably most well-known for helping run and writing about their leadership at Locally Optimistic, which is a community for current and aspiring data analyst leaders. Can you share the backstory on how this community got started and evolved? That's a great question. So I had mentioned in New York, you know, getting together and talking with other leaders of analytics and data teams. And basically what happened was I had sort of gone to a few data leaders in New York meetups where we would hang out and eat pizza and talk about all of the problems that we were facing. And after a while, a couple of us got together and I think it was four of us, myself, Scott Brightnother, who used to run analytics at Casper, Elon Mann, who at the time, I don't remember where he was running analytics, but it was somewhere. And then Sam Swift, who at the time was at Bowery Farms, I believe he's still there. Anyways, we got together and we were like, hey, look, you know, we talk about all of this stuff. It seems like there's no resource on the internet where people actually talk about this. And so we should start a blog and like 
put our thoughts out there. It seems like there's a, a lot of demand for people who have this experience in working with data in these modern companies. And so we did that. And then after we did that, you know, I think I was like, hey, we should start a Slack community and just see what happens. So we started the blog and then we started a Slack community and there was like, you know, 10 people in the Slack community and the blog had like four readers per week or whatever. And so it started really small, but then it started growing. And it's been such a privilege to get to be a part of that community and see it grow. People always tell me, they're like, oh, wow, like it must be so much work. How do you have time to like manage that community? And I'm like, I really don't do very much. The best part about a healthy community is that healthy communities are self-managing, right? I don't have to do that much work because everyone who is a part of the locally optimistic community is participating in keeping the community healthy. We have lots of volunteers who want to write blog posts. I help edit and you know help them come up with ideas and shape them a little bit, but really they're doing almost all of the work. When it comes to managing the community, if someone is behaving badly, like I don't really have to step in because most of the time other people in the community will step in and say, hey, knock it off. And so it really has been so rewarding to get to be a part of it just because I've gotten to see how that community has grown and how it's grown in such a healthy and positive way. And there's so many like fascinating conversations that people are having all of the time that it's really just like, it's so cool to get to be a part of it at all. And, you know, I'm proud that I got to have a hand in like starting it, but really like it wasn't very much work. Creating a Slack channel is not very much work. It's like seven button clicks. And really it's thanks to the community as a whole that it's become what it has. Like I didn't do that much, but I have gotten to participate and it's, it's just been so cool to see. I think like on the landing page on how to get involved said that the core motives, I think is really to be a brain trust, right? Of like people that you can share knowledge with. And I think like just by the sheer fact that all the people in the community is very accomplished with high integrity professionals, then they step in and take responsibility of managing bad behaviors. And like to that point about self-managing, it's just really, really been amazing to see that community evolve over time. Now let's go over some of your impactful blog posts on the optimistic website. So you wrote this three-part series on Azure analytics back a few years ago. You discussed some of the good aspect, the bad aspect, and some of the adjustment needed for analytics team to adopt the Scrum methodology. Can you briefly walk over some of the high-level points brought up in that series? Yeah. I mean, this blog post, I think was, it probably felt more insightful like a couple of years ago when I wrote it. And now I think it's more common knowledge. You know, this again was part of this movement as people were starting to talk about, okay, data teams, analytics teams are actually writing a lot of software. What does that mean? Right. My data team at Harry's was writing a lot of code. We spent all of our time writing code, whether that was SQL or LookML or Python or R, it was all code. It was not the same type of code that the software engineering team that was working on the website was writing, but it was a lot of code. And one of the interesting things that we realized was that just taking all of the processes that the software engineering team was using and applying them to data didn't actually work very well. And so we had to work through, sort of struggling through that for quite a while, trying to think through, okay, what works for us and what doesn't? And what do we need to do differently and why? And I think one of the core insights is that a lot of data work is a lot more speculative than software engineering. In software engineering, there tends to be this at least in like web software engineering, right? There tends to be this process where product manager comes up with a feature, they spec out the feature, they give it to the engineers, the engineers work on that feature, and then it's done. The product manager tests it and then it ships. And that's fairly straightforward, right? There's not a lot of features where the engineers are like, I don't know if that's possible or not. 
on the data side, there are a lot of questions that we get asked where our first response is, I don't know if that's possible or not. And so that to me is like one really critical difference to thinking about the workflows of these different teams is that the data teams work, a lot of it was just highly, highly speculative. People would say, okay, can, you know, can we target customers better to increase retention? We'd be like, mm, maybe, you know? And so there would be a lot of work to do on the research side just to go and say like, is this even plausibly possible? And we didn't know how long that would take. You know, we, someone would have to sit down and think about like, well, what questions should we ask? Do we have the data to answer this question? We have to go investigate to see if the data is there. And that big difference is really what I think makes it so that you can't, you know, just take the processes that software engineers use and apply them to data work. That being said, a lot of like Scrum and Agile methodology, I think is really valuable to the extent for the other side of analytics, where we are actually like building software products that are traditional. And so a lot of the points that I was making in that post were basically as a leader of an analytics team, you need to think hard about what type of work your team is actually doing. And depending on that type of work, you need to apply the right process. If you apply software engineering process to research work, it's not going to go very well. And if you apply research process to software engineering work, it's also not going to go very well. So a lot of the topic is about, or a lot of, I think the crux of the problem revolves around like figuring out how to separate those different pieces of work and then apply the right process to the right piece of it. And in a lot of analytics work, it's like there's a research phase and then there's a software engineering phase. And so just doing pure scrum, right, will only work for one half of that, one half of that. And so you're going to need to adjust the process to figure out, okay, what works for our team? How do we handle the different phases of the work that we're doing? Some of which might be highly speculative and won't have a clear deliverable until someone has actually gone and done the work to figure out what the deliverable even should be. Yeah, definitely. I'll be sure to include this series into the show notes so listeners can have a chance to take a look and how to walk over some of the bullet points you mentioned on how to like make this adjustment to combine, you know, the, the best of both the software side of thing and the research side of thing. I want to draw another post called, this one is called a cultural partnerships. It discusses the three key activities that can help an analytics team to identify the most important opportunities in the business and work effectively with key stakeholders and partner teams to drive value. These three things include first is to specify team values, second is to conduct field research, and third is to build personal relationship. Yeah, so can you unpack some of this boy in more details? Yeah, so this is um this was an interesting blog post, and this was a thing that I spent a lot of time thinking about again during my time at Harry's, where I was thinking about okay, how can our data team be as effective as possible? And you know, it took a lot of trial and error, I think, to figure this out. But what I realized was that you know our data team was sort of like an internal services team to some extent, where our customers were everyone in the organization, and we could only deliver value to them if they trusted us and they actually wanted to work with us. Because if they didn't want to work with us, we weren't going to be able to help them. If they didn't trust us, they wouldn't trust anything that we built for them. And so anything that we did would be dead in the water. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about, okay, how can we build that trust and build that partnership with our partner teams internally such that we can actually help them be more effective? And what it turned out, you know, sometimes software engineers like, myself will say like, oh, well, logically, like we built this thing. It's obviously better than what they were doing before. They should just use it. But the world doesn't really work that way. The world works on personal relationships. And so what we spent a lot of time talking about internally at Harry's was how can we build these relationships with people in our partner teams so that they will trust us and they will actually 
work with us on these different projects. And so a lot of what I laid out here was just sort of techniques for doing that, communicating what our team is about, what we value. That goes a long way to helping other teams understand what it is that we do. Actually going out and being in the field with our partner teams helps, makes them feel like we understand them, right? Like if I go and I sit down and I sit next to someone while they're doing their work for a day, like they're going to say like, oh, this person actually cares what it is that I do. They want to make me more effective. They're trying to help, right? Rather than just, you know, sending commands down from on high, we were always willing to get into the weeds with our partner team and just show them that we cared and also be able to learn from doing that, right? We didn't want to just reason about, oh, I think that this is what the finance team needs based on like my vague understanding of it. We actually wanted to get down and see like, okay, this is where their blockers are. This is what they actually need. This is what's going to help unblock them and add the most value to their day. And then lastly, sort of building on both of those things, personal relationships matter a lot, right? If we can help someone do something, even if it isn't a part of our like core mission, right? They just might need help, you know, like, I don't know, setting the chairs out in the morning before the meeting, we'll go and do it because it helps to build that personal relationship. And that means that when we need something or when we want to try something with them, they are going to be willing because they've seen us helping them before and they've seen our willingness to be good partners. And all of that just, again, these are things that like, I wish that I would have realized earlier in my career, how important they are. Personal relationships matter a lot. It's how you get things done in an organization and investing time and having personal relationships with people and making sure that my whole team had personal relationships with the whole organization was a huge unlock for our team in terms of being able to actually get things done. Because rather than being, oh, that's the data team, like they're always telling people what to do, but they don't really know. No one ever said that, right? They were like, oh, that's my friend. Connor, he understands my work really well. I know that he wants to help. We're going to try it. And that was just huge for us. And so I wrote those blog posters reflecting on those different strategies and how important they were to our success as a team when I was working at Harry's. Yeah, really emphasize the importance of that personal element, even in, in, a, in a work environment, it's so important. So you wrote this seminal piece called The Analytics Engineer back in early 2019. And it generated a lot of attention from the analytics community. The article basically argues that the analytics engineer who sits at the intersection of the skill set of data scientist, data analyst, and data engineer can provide a multiplayer effect on the output of an analytics team. So my question is twofold. First, how did you conceptualize the definition of this role? And second, how can analytics leaders cultivate and develop these analytics engineer talent? Yeah, this is a great question. I tell this story a lot because... Basically, this role came about when I was at Harry's and I was, you know, the first analytics hire and I was writing a lot of software and building a lot of tools and also doing a lot of analysis. And, you know, a lot of the tools that I was building were not very good. And I sort of knew it. I could look at the code and be like, this is not the right way to do this. I'm positive of it. But I knew that there were also people out in the world who like knew how to do it and would know how to do it better than I could. And you know, it's like, okay, we need to go hire this person. And I was like, it's not a data scientist because we don't need someone who's doing statistics or machine learning. It's not a data analyst, right? Because this is like a software engineering job. It's writing good software. That's the job. But it's not like, a, it's not a Ruby on Rails developer. 
it's not a data engineer because we had a data engineering team and they were doing other things. They were writing Spark jobs and Scala. This was not that either. So I was like, okay, like it's a software engineer on the analytics team. So we'll call it an analytics engineer. And I went to our HR team and I was like, hey, look, you know, like this is this job post. This is for an analytics engineer. And they were like, what on earth are you talking about? There's no way you can post this job. This title does not exist. And I was like, no, 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 no. It does. It does. Like, this is the thing that we need. I can explain exactly what this job is. I've written the job description. And they were like, how are we going to hire someone for a job title that no one else has? How are we going to pay them? Because we don't have like, there's no market for this compensation. And I was like, we have to figure it out. And I remember like, it was actually a real struggle to be able to open up that job description at the time, just because there were no comps for it and, and no one else was doing it. But once I started talking about the role, especially among other analytics leaders, like I got a lot of positive feedback where it resonated with people and they were either like, oh, that's the job that I'm doing. Like you're describing my job that you're right. It, it's not an analyst. It's not a data scientist. Like I'm a software engineer, but building tools for people who do data work. And so we hired a couple of these analytics engineers and they were incredibly impactful in the business, just, you know, really, really valuable. And I started evangelizing for this title and this role with other people. And I started, when I started describing it, other people, again, it just resonated with them. And so when it came time to write this blog post, I was like, look, like this is a real thing. A lot of people feel this way where they are doing this work. They don't feel like they're analysts. They don't feel like they're data scientists. And they also feel like that their work isn't really valued because maybe they get hired as an analyst, but they're doing work that isn't like analyst work. And so their boss is like, well, what are you doing? And they describe a bunch of work that's highly impactful, but it's not really their job description. And so a lot of people felt a little bit lost and they were like, look, like, I feel like I'm undervalued because I have the analyst title, but I'm doing software engineering work, but people are confused about it. And so when I published this blog post, I think a lot of people read it and they were like, oh, this is the job. Like it is a different job and it is really important and it's really impactful. And it just gave people the vocabulary to start talking about it. And I think that, again, it was one of those things where it wasn't like, it was just putting a name on something that already existed. And that was what made it impactful was that it gave people the vocabulary to talk about the work that they were already doing and to make the case that they should be valued for that work, right? A lot of analysts were like doing analytics work and then on their spare time, they were like, oh, I'm going to build some tools over here. And the tools that they were building were actually the most impactful work. But because their organization didn't know how to think about it, it wasn't end up getting valued. And so by putting a name on it and by advocating for building a career around it, I think that that has opened up people to, you know, it's opened up organizations to hiring for the role, to compensating them effectively. One issue that I saw was that a lot of data analysts would leave data analytics work and go work as software engineers. Cause they were like, I can make twice as much money as a software engineer. Like why on earth would I stay on the analytics team? And so, you know, having a role for those people where they can stay on the analytics team and create a lot of value and get compensated appropriately, I think was really, really important for the industry as a whole, just because we don't want to be losing those people to go become like Ruby on rails developers because they get a huge pay bump. Like that was bad for the organization and for these teams and for the industry. And so for me, that's always been a really important part of the equation was we need to figure out how to talk about this work that is really important and is really valued and make sure that we have a career path for these people that is compensated well in line with the value that they're creating and you know give them the resources that they need to actually grow as analytics engineers because before it would be a lot of you know data analysts who would you know we're trying to like teach themselves programming and there wasn't like a good path of like okay what are the skills that are actually needed and what's not and what's you know what's a valuable way to use my time and so 
I didn't answer all of those questions, but by sort of talking about this role as a starting place, other people went out and they started saying, okay, we can actually answer these questions. This is a role. We can talk about what an analytics engineer means as opposed to a data engineer, as opposed to a backend web dev engineer, as opposed to a front-end engineer. And it sort of gave us a place to put all of those conversations. And I think that that was just what was really important there. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for talking about the process of coming up with this job description like and and really mentioned the early challenges of adopting that terminology and how, you know, that evolved over time. And yeah, this is really kind of describe your own career as well. Like you, you have like that background and you learn engineering on the side. And it seems like, you know, that's one of the profiles that a lot of these analytics engineers can turn into. So you kind of answer a little bit about the need for like this role, right? Like and why more organization data leaders can unblock the business value bearing some of these analysts engineer. And really, you did mention a lot about started building that career path for these people. Following that thread, on that concept of analyst engineer, recently you and Claire Caro co-founded the Analyst Engineer Club, which provides a training course for data analysts looking to improve engineering skill. And yeah, we talked a little bit about the need, and there was actually a great blog post that Claire wrote a couple of months ago called Education is Broken. Could you mind talking a little bit about the catalyst that enabled you and her to start this club? As well as your philosophy to teaching, because there was like some materials that I read that talk about cohort-based learning as well as using a real tooling infrastructure that could be incorporated into the course. Yeah. I mean, Claire is incredibly talented. I'm just super lucky to have her as a partner. We have known each other for a long time and, you know, we got to talking and because she's such a talented teacher and instructor and because, you know, I've also spent a lot of time thinking about what analytics engineering means. We were like, okay, it could be interesting to work on a course here. And as we started looking around, what we realized was that there really is a big gap in the market right now. There's a lot of demand for analytics engineers and just not very many of them. And because there's that huge gap in the market and because no one really does training on this because it's such a new field, right? Like analytics engineering didn't exist five years ago. And so there's just no college has a course on analytics engineering. Right. And so this really is a new field. There are a few experts in it and a number of practitioners, but most of those people were self-taught. And so what Claire and I just realized was that, look, we can, what we want to do is we want to create a course that teaches all of the things that we wish that we had learned when we were data analysts becoming analytics engineers. And that those things are things that we eventually learned ourselves, but through like trial and error, and it was really painful. Um, and now what we want to do is we were like, look, we can help these people who today are data analysts, but who are technically inclined and who want to learn these things. We can just help them do it so much faster than they would do if they were doing it on their own. That was where the course sort of came from. And then from like a pedagogical perspective, what we really wanted to focus on was actually making that learning really effective. Claire and I have both taken online courses in different of different styles, right? Everything from like a self, you know, you know, one of those giant MOOCs where you just sort of like watch a bunch of videos, may not do the homework on your own. We've taken different classes. We've done learning through books, all kinds of different things. And what we realized was that the most effective way of learning is actually doing it with other students, right? That helps keep you accountable. It helps you learn from them, teaching them and having them teach you. Those are all really valuable ways to cement knowledge, but also doing it in a way where it's unlike a boot camp, right? Claire has taken boot camps before. I've never been super enthusiastic about them. A lot of what they're trying to do is teach you like how to get a job, 
right? And so they're very much oriented around that. Whereas what we wanted to focus on were what are the skills that are actually important to engineers and what are those skills that we wish that we had had? And, you know, I think we're really focused on making sure that students can take what they're learning and then implement it in their jobs, you know, every week. And so it's not a thing where you're going to work on a bunch of infrastructure that we've made that is, you know, isolated from the rest of the world and pristine. It's really like we wanted to say, okay, if you were to go to your new job, are you going to be able to use the tools that we're teaching you how to use at your new job? And we wanted that answer to be like a solid yes. And so that to us, again, was really important because we've worked with junior engineers before who show up and they're like, oh, you know, like, I don't know how to use the command line because I've only ever used notebooks. And it's like, well, like notebooks are not how we actually write software. You can learn how to write some code in a notebook, but it's not how real software engineers develop. And so we wanted to get people exposure get our students the exposure to the real tools that real software engineers use. So that way, when they go in to actually start doing that work, they don't feel overwhelmed by, oh man, I've never, you know, I don't know how to use Vim, right? I don't know how to exit from Vim. It's like, those are things that we teach because we think that that's important to actually doing software engineering work. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very excited to see this initiative and hopefully to follow some of the future cohorts and see that some of the materials have an impact on the career path of these engineers as well. Some of the remaining questions, I want to go to your perspective on the broader data infrastructure, data tooling, because this is something that you've been focusing on throughout your career. It could be great to kind of hear some of your broader thoughts on how this market is evolving. So, you know, a lot of people in this space know about the terminology called the modern data stack, which is a topic that's getting a lot of attention in recent years. And in fact, you previously written a blog post with that title, and you, you argue that data scientists can make use of the modern data stack to work more efficiently and shape more ML models faster. So yeah, it's just like a very high level. How do you anticipate the evolution of the stack within the upcoming years? It's a great question. I don't really know. You know, I think we've got a good sort of central platform. I think a lot of what the future is going to hold is going to be figuring out how to actually extract more value from that platform. And whether that's by building machine learning on top of it or figuring out how to do more complex analyses and then communicate those out. Those are all things that I think where the areas of focus are going to be, but I have no idea what that's actually going to look like. I'm really excited to see where it goes. I think we finally achieved the dream of having a good, clean sort of base of data to work off of. And now the question is, okay, we've got this clean base of data now we can actually start doing data science, right? Now we can actually start building products on top of that data. And I think that that's where all of the evolution is going to happen in the next couple of years. Fabulous. Data quality is another topic that I could love to discuss. Briefly, you've written this blog post on the Dataflow website, and you discuss how organizations can build, start, and maintain the data quality flywheel. Can you unpack the big thesis that you provided in that post about this concept? Yeah. I mean, this is a thing. A lot of people talk a lot about data quality. For me, when I think about it, I think the most important thing is to have as many eyes on the data as possible, right? That is, the more people are using the data, the more likely they are to catch errors when they're small before they become a big thing and help you fix them. One of the big problems with a lot of data teams is that you know, you'll talk to their stakeholders and they say, well, we don't really trust the data. And that means they don't look at the data and that means the data never gets fixed. And so that is just like a really bad situation to be in. And so what you want to do is you want to get into the situation where people are using the data. They therefore notice when something is wrong and therefore, and then they are also 
invested in fixing it because they get a lot of value out of the data. And so as a data team, if you're thinking about how do we make our data better, that's really what you want to do because the data team often doesn't have the business context to like be able to eyeball and see like, oh, this chart doesn't look right, but the end users of the data do. And so you want to actually use those end users to help you maintain data quality as much as you possibly can. And the way that you do that is through having them get value out of the data and therefore be invested in helping you fix it. And so that's the data quality flywheel is once you have data quality and you have a product that people are using, then if anything goes wrong, they can alert you to it very quickly. You can fix it and then they will keep using it and keep looking at it and keep alerting you to it. And that is a really, I think, productive place to be. But you have to actually you know, make sure that that flywheel is actually working in order for it to work. If they report data quality issues to you and you don't fix it, then they will lose trust in you. They will stop looking at the data and they will stop reporting issues to you and it will break. As a data leader, as a member of a data team, I think it's really important to keep that flywheel in mind so that you can keep the level of data quality really high in the organization. I think right at the introduction of that post, you said that data quality is a journey, not a destination. So it requires continued investment of the time and just getting more people involved would be very useful. Exactly. Uh, so finally, you seem to be quite opinionated on a variety of enterprise level analytics challenges as you've written a bit on your personal blog, everything ranging from knowledge sharing to testing for data warehouses to data catalogs. In your opinion, what are some of the challenges that are still underinvested and require more innovation for data practitioners? That's a great question. I think the biggest area that I'm really excited about is figuring out how to communicate and share and document more complex analyses. I think, you know, the world of business intelligence of like self-serve data, we've made huge strides in the last like five years. And I think that that's been really important and has unlocked a lot of value, but for things that are more complicated than what, you know, can just be pulled from like a stacked bar chart that gets refreshed every week, these more complex analyses about what is the LTV and what is our forecasting, those things are really complicated. They combine both like software, someone wrote a bunch of code and data at a point in time. The complexity of that, of having those three different pieces, I think makes it really, really hard to think about, okay, maybe we want to refresh this later. Maybe we don't. Maybe we want to refer back to it at a certain point of time. It's really complex. So it actually requires like a lot of explanation along with just the chart in order to communicate the learnings from it. Those sorts of things right now, I think we're still really weak on. And I think there's a lot of tooling that could be developed that will help analysts and data scientists in the future be able to actually pursue those things. Right. Excited to, to hopefully see more tool and start up being built out to tackle top on communicating complex analysis. So Michael, this part of conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions and you can give quick answers for the listeners. Number one. Name three people in the analytics engineering community whose work you admire. Yeah, so I admire Claire Carroll, who's my partner on Analytics Engineers Club. She does a ton of just incredibly interesting work on education and then also on product building and definition. Drew Bannon is the head of product at DBT Labs. Like he's, uh, you know, I think a genius when it comes to thinking about building tools really effectively for data practitioners. And Barry McArdle is, is a co-founder of Hex, and they're building a bunch of really interesting tooling sort of in the notebook and data communication space that I think is really exciting. Number two, name one book that you would recommend for analysts to cultivate an engineering mindset. That's a great question. I don't have a good book that describes that. Claire keeps threatening to write a book. So maybe one day when Claire writes that book, they should go and read that one. That's a good book. 
And then finally, imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the early stage analytics engineers and Twitter. What could you tweet about? Yeah. So, I mean, I think for me, the biggest thing is to remember that analytics engineering does not mean DBT developer. I think the world of where analytics engineers can add value is really, really wide. And so analytics engineers should be thinking about all of the different types of tools that they can build, some of which might be in a warehouse using DBT, but some of which might be outside of warehouse building other super impactful products. And so I would say that analytics engineers should take a really wide scope to the types of problems that they think that they can work on and yeah, really go out and try to change the world and make the whole industry more effective. I think that's a brilliant way to end our conversation. So Michael, I really enjoy talking with you about today, learning about your background in econometrics, your career, working on a variety of interesting analytics problems at large, medium-sized and startup organization and even now working on your own company, your thought leadership on how to make their teams more productive and less time on top uh, infrastructure and logistics tasks and leverage the intellect for more high impact organization. I also really enjoy reading about some of your articles on how to building a data driven culture, the concept of analytics engineers, as well as your thoughts on how to monitor the second evolve over time and kind of really looking forward to your current projects with the analytics engineer club that will help more people go into this career path and make an impact for their respective organization. I'll be sure to include everything on the show notes so listeners can have a chance to take a look and follow up and reach out and probably like get invited to the locally optimistic community to hang out if they are so interested. So yeah, Michael, thanks a lot for spending your Saturday with me today and I hope you have a great rest of your weekend. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, James. I really appreciate it. Well... That's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.